0: Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to your word, make it, um, make it as weighty as it actually is. These aren't merely uh, words on a page. It's not ink on a page. It is unlike any other book. This is the living and active word of God. So we ask that you would feed us through your word, that, that our souls would be nourished, that our hearts would be um, enlivened, that our bodies would be strengthened, that our minds would would be flooded with your truth. Grant us through the work of the Spirit um, not just the ability to understand the words that we're going to hear, but to believe the words that we hear and ultimately to be able to respond to the words that we're about to hear. Above all things, God, as we pray every week as a church, as we come to this text, God, and we get challenged and stirred and directed and, 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 and shaped, what we need more than anything else is to come away from this time with a profound sense of our need in Jesus Christ and the comfort knowing that Jesus Christ is everything that we need. Make Jesus really loud to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week, uh, if you're part of the service, you know that I built the sermon around three Songs. This week I'm going to build the sermon around three words and I'm going to keep trying to come up with ideas of how to build the sermon. Next week I'm thinking three dance moves and what's great is I'm not preaching next week and so I'm excited for you to see that from our guest preacher. They didn't know that but now the cat's out of the bag, Um, I'm going to do three words. I'm going to give you two reasons for it. One of them is a generic Bible study reason. And I just kind of want to give this to you as as a help or an aid in your Bible study. And the second one will be related to the text. The first one, the Bible study one, is sometimes the Bible is just hard to understand. And it's tough to clue into. And one strategy is this isn't always true, but oftentimes if you see something repeated multiple times, if you see a key word or a key thought or phrase, that can really clue you in to what's important. And the second reason we're using these three words is that's what's gonna happen in this text with three different words that are repeated multiple times. And what's happening is the author, John, is he's right into this church. He's going to spiral around and he's going to take these three words and he's really kind of, he's going to, he's going to link them and weave them together to make one big truth, one really big, important truth. We'll get to that truth here in a minute, but let me give you the three words and then we'll read the text. And my encouragement to you is to like really listen. How many times do you hear each word? The three words are this, appear, practice, and children. So appear, practice, and children. Wherever you're joining us from, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Let me go back to verse 20, I apologize. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. to grab a seat. First word, appear. Happens uh, five times in these verses. And if you include uh, at least one other reference to Christ appears in that, his coming, we could say there's six ways this is is used in these verses. And, And we can see it both in Jesus will appear and Jesus has appeared. In verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his, his coming. His, Jesus' return sets the table for the context of this text, that Jesus, when he comes back and we all stand before him, what will be our response? And I was thinking about this, obviously, a lot this week as I was studying this text. I really thought about it um, a few days ago as I was prepping this passage. I was at Camber, um, uh, probably second favorite coffee shop in Bellingham, shout out to, to Makeworth, um, great part of our family, uh, a church family here launched that wonderful coffee shop. But I was at Camber and um, there was uh, two young ladies, uh, likely Western students who were wearing Western gear and, and uh, just talking really, really loudly. And so I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, they're just really, really loud. Um, and saying some very, very personal, and frankly, some, some pretty outlandish stuff. And I'm not chucking stones. I'm just, it was, it was kind of shocking to hear it in the open air that we were. And then they moved on to talking about Christians. And the things they said were, um, were not very encouraging towards Christians. And some of their, um, some of their statements, I think, right rightfully so. the Sometimes the hypocrisy of Christians and kind of the, the mean-heartedness of Christians and some other things. And then one of the young ladies said, you know, but I have some friends who are Christians actually, and, and they're not really that bad. They actually seem to have like kind of a wholesome relationship with God. But the thing with these Christians, they're not like the other Christians who like to keep all the rules. I mean, these Christians, they, they do stuff like, and then they began to talk about what these, these Christians did. And I can't tell you the things that they said that these Christians did, but I will tell you that the things they started to say, I was so uncomfortable with, I literally had to get up and just leave because it was so real, um, uh, but so out of bounds for the things that I want my heart to engage with. As I was studying this text, the verses here became very real to me. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Or verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Or this one, verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he His righteousness, or the the kind of concluding verse to this section, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Don't be deceived. I mean, they just made it really loud. Don't be deceived. The world is saying one thing. God's word is saying something different. As I listened to their conversation and began to reflect on my own life, can you be a Christian and not care if you look like Christ? Can you be a Christian and not care? Have no regard for following his word. No regard for looking like him. On one hand, I think it's a simple question. and Today's text, I think clearly in very stark language, says no, you cannot. But here's the rub. The application gets really tricky, really tricky. How much like Christ? How much do I need to care about looking like Christ? What degree, how consistently do I look like Christ? How frequently? Can I ever have seasons of my life where I don't care and then I start to care and then I don't care and I start to care? There's a lot of other questions. Hopefully we can answer some of those. But for now, let me give you a simple summary of the passage as we go through it. I, if I had to summarize this in uh, less than a tweet, it would be something like this. Being like Christ is the result of being in Christ. Or we could say being like Christ is the evidence that you are actually in Christ. Jesus appeared, so Jesus will appear, but Jesus did appear. We see this in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sins there's no sin there's a progression that happens in these two verses sin is lawlessness then he appeared to take away sin and in him there is no sin. And what's happening between verses four and five is that what, what, the, what God is doing here is he's setting up the problem and then he's pointing to the solution of that problem. The problem is this, that sin is lawlessness. It is active rebellion against God and his authority. It's not just messing up. It's not just mistakes. It's not just behavioral twitches. It's it's not just personality issues. It's not just folly. It is moral rebellion against God. It's serious. It sets up the great solution, which is God's solution, which is ultimately Jesus. It's it's him. It's the one who came to, to deal with sin, and in him was no sin. And what it's saying is it pointing back to 1 John 2, 1, where we have this great declaration that Jesus Christ is the righteous. And then in verse 2, and then it says he is the propitiation for our sins. He's this wrath-bearing offering. So he comes as the righteous one to deal with the seriousness of the problem in which we find ourselves. I was talking to Emma the other day. She she I can't remember if it was like we were talking about she's going off to college or she was prepping to go on, on a longer run or something like that. And I, I often will say stuff like this to my kids. I'll say like, okay, Emma, I hope you have a great time, but promise me that nothing bad will ever happen to you. <laughs> it's just like, well, I can promise you the exact opposite, Dad. And, and for whatever reason, that spun me into this way of thinking. So I'm sitting there, and I got Emma's there, and Juddy's there, and Lily's there, and Katie, my wife, is in the next room. And, and, and in my head, I was like, oh, if I could take all of your hurts and all of the bad stuff that will happen to you in life, I would take those all on myself. So I'm thinking that, and I, then I, but I was like, but I won't. I was like, I don't want all that. I'd love to say that I'm the kind of dad and the kind of husband that would, but I'm not. But guess what? Jesus is that kind of savior. That he took all the consequences to to our lawless rebellion to God. It's the story of the gospel that Jesus, the righteous one, the one that was never lawless, experienced the curse of our rebellion upon the cross where he died in the place of all those that trust in him. It's how he came to deal with, was sin, that's why he appeared, in order to take away sin. Jesus, the righteous, wrath-bearing sacrifice, he did all the right things and he took all of the horrible consequences that we have merited. And what we gotta get in the text like this, though, is that what we're talking about, the forgiveness that we have in Christ is only one aspect of the gospel. But there's more. We see the logical outworking in verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or or known him. But this gets really amplified as we get into verse 8. And we see another aspect, kind of a parallel statement of why Jesus appeared. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John Stott in his commentary, I'll just summarize something that he said. He talks about in verses 4 and 5, there's this link of sin with the law of God, which sin breaks. But then here in verse 8, what he says is something like, um, it links sin with the devil from which sin originates. It's just a lot of serious words in these verses. And then verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. I mean, these are serious words. When I was in seminary, I had a, uh, my Hebrew professor, so we're trying to learn Hebrew, um, or at least how to translate it, uh, he was just a stunning man, just a really stunning man, very, very regal. Um, I don't know if I use that descriptor about many people, but he was. He would always show up in well-polished uh shoes always had a very uh well tailored three-piece suit with always the vest i mean he's just dressed to the nines Um, brilliant brilliant man phd from harvard amongst a number of other schools well published and we're studying hebrew from the hebrew grammar that he wrote and published which is used worldwide and i can't even describe to you the glory and weightiness of his prayers they were just absolutely stunning Um, and it wasn't an easy class he wasn't an easy professor and many students really struggled doing well in his class but he was never mean he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't mean but the class was rigorous his his nickname he was affectionately called the velvet hammer Um, and i just And behind that this rigor was for a reason, and it was out of a heart of affection. It was these things. He loved his students, and he loved the Word of God, and he wanted his students to get the Word of God well. Some of us might be uncomfortable with the language of John, but it's not without a reason. John is, is a spiritual dad writing to a church, and, he, and, and there's something really, really important at stake in these words. There's this is an uncomfortable mashup of tender affection, little children, and serious warnings. But he's honest with them. He's honest with them. he's being clear and he's being truthful with them. And God is to us through these words so that they can know if they're in Christ or not. Right? I mean, this conversation at Cameron, you've probably heard it so many times. It does it, you can you can live however you want, you can do whatever you want. That doesn't determine whether you're a follower of Christ. That's the the air in which we breathe and into that these words come to challenge us. We see that with the works that Christ came to destroy. When it says he came to destroy the works, not just even singular, but the works of of the devil, if we look at the context of that, you go a few verses earlier, what we, would, we, we, we could look at, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it was unbelief in the Son of God or distortions of who Jesus is. It's theological issues. And then here in verses four and five, it's a disregard for God's law, its moral issues. And then at the very end of verse 10, it's disregard for one's brother, it's relational or social dissonance. And what's interesting with those works that Christ came to destroy is that those are actually the three what they would call cardinal tests that are in the book of First John to say, like, Am I a follower of Christ? And first John repeatedly goes to these what do you believe? And how do you behave? And how do you love? The devil's works simply are to get us to doubt God, to reject his law, and to disregard his people. John Stott summarizes this um, sentiment this way. He says, if the first step to holiness is to recognize the sinfulness of sin, boy, that's an interesting phrase, the sinfulness of sin, both in its essence, as lawlessness, and its diabolical origin, The second step is to see its absolute incompatibility with Christ in his sinless person and saving work. The more clearly we grasp these facts, the more incongruous will sin appear, and the more determined we shall be to be rid of it. What I want to do is take that last phrase and transition to our next word practice. That word appears six times, at least by my counting, six different times that word practice appears. And as we think of this phrase, the more determined we will will be to be rid of it. Um, I love that word practice. I love that that's the word that's used in such a serious text. Practice, not perfect. Practice. That's immensely encouraging to me. Even as I'm preaching right now and I'm thinking of all the ways in which I sin, as I'm speaking these words, that all the ways in which I sin, that the invitation to test out in one way of, am I a follower of Christ, is do I practice? What do I practice? And the principle behind this is that practice makes better this is the word in verse 29 if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him or verse 7 little children let no one deceive you whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous so all of my, uh, I, my study, the fact that you support me to be able to study the text, I know you want like really good insights into the Bible. So let me give you the technical definition of what it means to practice. It means to practice, okay? Practice means to practice. It doesn't mean to be perfect. The reason I say this is one of the things that can really derail Christians as they practice righteousness is that they still stumble with unrighteousness but that's to be expected. This text is not denying this. We don't get to chapter three and forget that we had chapter one and chapter two. I thank God that we have chapter one and chapter two as we get to chapter three and read some of these words. We have things like in verse eight of chapter one where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John's already said, you're not perfect. John 2.1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, there's the expectation that you're going to sin. So practice means practice, not perfection. It means a pattern. And it's really helpful as we look, It means a pattern. It means an overarching lifestyle. It means an overarching orientation of our hearts. It's a lifestyle that reveals something. It means... Uh, practices righteousness is righteous. Like if you look at verse seven, this is really interesting. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. It does not say whoever is righteous is righteous. It doesn't say whoever perfectly performs righteously is righteous. It says whoever practices it. Only Jesus gets the last half of verse five. And I know I'm bouncing around. I almost never do this, but I'm trying to follow these words as we go through it. The last half of verse five says this. And in him... There is no sin. He is the only righteous one. We're just learning. We talked about this in a previous sermon, but it's the difference as you think of this practice is the difference between looking at your life as a snapshot or as a feature length documentary. All of us, if we insert into different moments, in many moments, more moments than we want, but we look at different moments, we can see acts that look like that person must not love Christ. There's nothing would tell me in that moment. But if you look at the whole tenor of your life, what's the overarching narrative? I'm trying to love God. I'm trying to follow God. I want to, or when I don't want to, I want to at least want to, or I, I don't feel contrition over my sin, but I want to feel conviction. I want to want to. I, I want to want to want to. I mean, it's like, is there something there that says like, there's some evidence that says, no, I don't want to just disregard him. I don't want to just disregard his word. Say it again, being like Christ is the result of being in Christ. And, and really, sad, I, I, in my notes, I kind of put sadly, but then I actually put, this is actually helpful. The inverse is actually true as well. So verse 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Saying like, if you don't care, if you don't care at all, that sh- it should be a sign that something might be off Something is off in your relationship and your claim of being a follower of Christ. i me invite you. I'm going to mix it up just a little bit. So we practice. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Trust the process. I think, I was trying to think of different metaphors and images that would be good to talk about what it looks like to like practice righteousness and the progression of a follower of Christ. And I came up with this one. I think it is a fantastic metaphor for Christians. WD40. I think WD-40 is one of the greatest, like, illustrations of what it means to be a Christian. And it's not because of what it does, although it's functional in lots of ways. It's because of where the name comes from. You know, WD-40, and some of you might know where this comes from. The W and the D, they stand for water displacement. And then the 40, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, but there's a reason it's WD-40 and not WD-32 or WD-18. It has nothing to do with the chemical compounds that are actually in this stuff to make it work. It's just the 40th time that the inventor finally got it right. That's all it means, he just kept trying. He just kept trying. He 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 failed forward. He said I I I didn't fail. I think Thomas Edison's credited with this. I don't know if it actually happened, but you know, he tried to invent it. It took a thousand tries to invent the light bulb. And he says I didn't fail a thousand times. I just figured out 991 ways that it doesn't work. You just trust the process. Sometimes the biggest barrier to our growth is we just give up. In texts like this say, "Advice, don't give up." It says keep practicing practicing will make better. I love um, a book called Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. Really, really good book. And in it, he begins with this story. He says, uh, you know, imagine a bedroom scene. You have a a young eight-year-old boy who's in there practicing the violin. And his window is open, and he looks out, and his friends are out playing in in the street, they're playing games, they're laughing on a nice sunny day, and he's stuck inside doing scales, trying to learn how to play the violin. He says, and he says, and like, imagine this kid. He just wants to give up. He says, it's not worth it. It's too difficult. It's not coming fast enough. And and, and Whitney says, like, imagine if this child gets transported. So he gets transported into this incredible 5,000-seat auditorium, this incredible symphonic hall. that's just adorned and beautiful and gorgeous. And he's in there. And the room is just packed with people in, like, hushed awe, edge of their seats, jaw-dropped silence. And on the stage, there's a solitary figure standing there with a light on them, playing the most complex, intricate, moving music that you can possibly imagine. And he looks at the face. He realizes it's him. And the way Whitney uses that, he says, that's what we're doing when we're practicing righteousness is we're getting a picture of where it leads us and it encourages us not to give up. So I just invite you, I just want to invite you, trust the process. And I'm going to tell you this, more than that, trust the Savior. Some of you may have noticed that I skipped over a massive verse where our word um, appears, where it actually comes, where this, in, 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 the, in the first moon, as we talk about appearing, in verse 2 of chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So let's put that together. Practice makes better. Jesus will make perfect. I'm going to come back to that. Just hold on to it. Let's go to our last word, children. Children occur six times in this text. Um, and I, I want to clue us in, uh, really, I'll do, let's just go to one, one instance of it in uh, verse 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning for god's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of god and this is talking this process of becoming his children. And what it's talking about is the the word seed there means nature. It's saying it's been born of God's nature. Uh, And and what it's talking about is new abilities and new capacities and new affections and new life. And why this is so helpful as we think about practicing righteousness is what energizes our practice is actually still God's grace. came across an article this past week um, said this, everyone thinks they are above average. Thought that was kind of funny. Technical term for it is illusory superiority. And in it, it referenced a study from 1977 um, that, uh, that my, I remember my dad doing this joke with. It's been a joke in our family for like 40 years. So, a study from 1977 that said this 94% of professors rated themselves as above average compared to their peers. Now, I was an art major, not a math major, but I don't think that's how percentages Work. I don't think that's how averages work. 94% of professors rate themselves as above average when compared to their peers. Here's why I bring this up. When I think of most Christians, I don't think above average is the ditch that they fall into. I think often what we think is we're just incapable and unable. Often we think we're just so messed up that we can't really ever do the right thing. Like we all have Romans 7.19 as our life verse. Let me give it to you. Romans 7.19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Look at a text like this, and I was wondering how you hear this verse. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. how do you hear that when you look at your own struggles and your frustrations and your, 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 your conflict and your interpersonal issues and your thought world? And you, like, there just feels like there's dissonance. But what texts like this make clear, and I just think this is so encouraging, you can change. That's what it's saying. In fact, it's guaranteed. Becoming like Christ is a result of being in Christ. You can change. Um, It's not just an encouraging phrase. It's actually the title of one of my favorite books, and I love the subtitle. It's this, God's Transforming Power for Our Sinful Behavior and Negative Emotions. Let me unpack a little bit more what it means to be born again into God's nature that allows us to practice righteousness. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says this. If you're struggling to believe that you can change, That's that's what allows us to do with this text. That's why we say that those who are becoming like Christ, it's it's displaying, it's the result of being in Christ because God hasn't just given us a new philosophy to follow. He's made us new people. That's why these stark contrasts in this text. You can change, you can change. You know, and perhaps it's easier to believe that when you think about other people, not yourself. Look at other people that have changed, other people that have followed Christ and changed. Uh, i'm always writing down book ideas that i'm never ever going to write one of them came out of of COVID, when I was overwhelmed with way too many things that I should not be worried about, and so I came up with this working title: "I Am Not the Christ." And other passages I wish I believed because I was living as if I have to solve and save and do all those things. And so what that went to was a series of kind of reflections of just feeling really overwhelmed, and took me to different texts and passages. And one of the things that I that, that came, so I just got like eight or nine chapters in this little outline, and one of them was this i can finish well that was immensely encouraging to me and let me point to somebody who finished well the apostle paul who wrote half of the new testament from second timothy 4 6 through 7 these are some of the, these are this is a passage i wish i believed i have fought the good fight i have kept the faith i have finished the race Boy, that's been immensely encouraging. When I look around, it's so many people that have the job I have, and it seems like so few of them actually finish well. Paul finished well. Perhaps I can too. Perhaps you can. Perhaps we can change. You can change. You have changed. You have changed. You have. If you're in Christ, you have changed. Kanye West, in his album, Jesus is King, and his song, Follow God, says this. He says, "Screaming at my dad," and he told me it ain't Christ-like. But nobody never tell you when you're being like Christ. That line has really stuck with me since since I first heard it. No one no one tells you when you're being like Christ. I think it's one of the reasons that we don't think we can actually change. We just think we're we're stuck as we don't see it. Now I think about this a lot as a parent. uh, with four kiddos, I just imagine you know, like what it would be like living with somebody who constantly <laughs> pointed out all the times that you blew it. They, they, they caught every single time that you messed up and then they told you about it. I just think, man, my kids got it rough. If I had a friend that nitpicked me the way that I do with my kids, they would not be my friend for very long And as I've thought about that, I've been, I really try to remember what that would, I try to engage with what that would feel like. And so what I try to do is catch my kids doing the right thing and actually tell them. You know, think about this with churches. Maybe think about this with this sermon, maybe. But but, but think about with churches. I mean, preachers are the worst with this. We're really heavy on where we stink, but we very rarely celebrate where we're actually like Christ. And so it, it makes sense that we doubt that we even could be. It's it's kind of like, let me give you all the ways you fail to live up to Jesus. But far too rarely we say, like, this is how I see you living like Jesus. But this text is saying that we can. Let me give you a little challenge. Make it really practical. This challenge will change the world. This will change the world. Point out where someone's like Christ this week. Like, go looking. Go look today. Go say, I see this change in you. Oh my goodness, I I see the way you talk there. I I saw you forgive there. Or I saw you be generous. Or I saw you serve there. Do that. Let's do this challenge. Look for one a day. Look for one a day. If you can't see it in yourself, see it in somebody else and point it out. You will change the world. You can change. You have changed. You will change. You will. We already covered this in 1 John 3 2, but don't ever forget it. What we will be, we're not yet, but when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Let that future promise flood right now, especially if you're struggling to change, especially if you feel weighed down by habits and patterns and rebellion. You will change. I'm just going to reinforce that with more Bible. I want to bring, bring, the, bring these verses into your worst days. Bring these verses to bear upon your hearts and on one another's hearts as we walk as a church to, like, and to try to be more like Christ. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15:51 and 2. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of the eye. Romans 8:29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he's predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. I love it in that text, it's, it's he has done it. Not just he will do it, it's talking. it's the, the, the promise of your future beauty is so sure that it can be written as if it's already happened. You have ability. Through the grace of God and the, 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 the remaking of you into the divine image. And it comes from your identity. This word children, six times, so many references to it. You have new, this new ability, this new life in Christ. Let me give you a sobering picture, and I'll wrap this up quickly. A sobering picture, and then we'll just end with an encouraging hope. Um, verse 10 it really does summarize the text in stark ways um for sure by this it is evident who are the children of god and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of god nor is the one who does not love his brother number of years ago i was at a church planter um, retreat uh, part of our church plan network that our church is a part of and russell moore was our main speaker um, really, really gifted? I think I think a, a courageous and and really brilliant um, theologian and uh, and uh, he spent spent probably two days, probably like seven sessions, walking through the Lord's Prayer. And there were so many things he said that were were helpful and insightful and stirring. But there was something that he said when he talked about the the phrase. Um, uh, Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one that is always, it just really struck me then and it still strucks me um, now. And what he did is he talked about that phrase Is he took us to Christ and he took us specifically to Christ's temptations in the wilderness where, where the devil comes to, to tempt him and he offers him the kingdoms of the earth, and he offers him uh, provision. He offers him all sorts of promises, and he's tempting Christ. And if you know the story, you know that Christ resisted the temptation because in him is no sin, and thanks be to God that when he's tempted, he never failed, that he might be our righteousness. But that wasn't the full point that Russell Moore was making. He said, if you really know what's going on here with the, the evil one in Christ is that he wasn't just tempting Christ, he was trying to adopt him. And it, it just struck me. And I don't know if Russell Moore had First John 3 in mind, but that's what I keep thinking, is that, that what's going on here is not just a temptation to sin, but, but, but a luring into a different allegiance and family. The reason I bring that up is that when I remember that, it gives me that much more fuel to fight. Because I knew who I want to be, my father. And it's not that one. It's the one that I'm given in Christ. So let's remember that as we finish. I'll bring, down, I'll bring together the big ideas of this text with a verse from Ephesians 5.1. Here's the first half of the verse. Therefore, be imitators of God. And if we stop there, we're gonna miss something really sweet about how we get to do that and the banner of grace in which we do that. Here's the full verse. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change This, your identity isn't dependent on your change. You're a child of the heavenly king. We grow. We get to grow as deeply loved children of God. We don't grow to become children of God. And if we are children of God, guess what? Our growth is guaranteed by God's grace. Being like Christ is the result of being in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we come to a text like this with stark contrast, but really in, in one way a very simple truth, but also one that can get very tricky. And so I pray that for each heart that is absorbing these words, you by the Spirit would do the translation, the application of exactly what needs to happen. That you would call those that do not care about the things in their lives that you would call them, call me, call all of us to repentance, that we would care. For those with tender consciences, God, that, that, that are conflating and mistaking what it means to practice versus to be perfect, I pray that you would help to divide those. That Christ alone is the only one without sin. For those that are worn down by the trying and it feels like they're making no growth, God, I pray that you would You would strengthen them for for endurance to keep going, trusting that they can change and that one day they will be changed. And then, in it all you would keep Christ loud. As this verse began, little children abide in Him. Because it's in Christ that we're saved. It's in Christ that we grow. It's in Christ that we're forgiven. It's in, in Christ that we're protected. And it's in Christ that we become like Christ. Help that become louder than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.